Hi, I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public Radio. And welcome to Movies 101, that show composed of a trio of characters, each of whom has at least one thing in common. We're all confirmed movie fans. And speaking of characters, the two that we'll be addressing during this show couldn't be more different. Yet each, in his own way, is uniquely his own man. And especially in this gender-conscious era, I do mean man. The first is Paul Hunnam, a demanding prep school teacher played by Paul Giamatti in Alexander Payne's film The Holdovers. The second is the unnamed protagonist of David Fincher's Netflix offering, The Killer. Let's begin by heading back to the halls of an elite New England prep school circa the Christmas holidays of 1970. We've seen Paul Giamatti play a variety of characters over the years, but unlike any number of skilled actors, he brings much the same energy to each role. In playing Paul Hunnam, a teacher of ancient history who expects more of his students than he typically gets, Giamatti shows signs of characters he's played in everything from Sideways to the Showtime series Billions. Impatience, insecurity masked by arrogance, and ultimately the kind of vulnerability involving obligatory life lessons. The conceit of Alexander Payne's film, written by David Hemmingson but suggested by the 1935 French film Merluse, is that Hunnam is required to stay at school over the holidays and shepherd a few students, the holdovers of the film's title, who for various reasons have nowhere else to go. One of the students is Angus Tully, played by newcomer Dominic Sessa, whose belligerence initially sets him up for conflict with Hunnam. But similar to past teacher-student films, Dead Poet Society comes to mind, both emotional turbulence and eventual maturation are on the menu for both. In the end, The Holdovers offers no real surprises, but the performances by Giamatti and Sessa for sure, but also Divine Joy Randolph as the school's no-nonsense kitchen manager, give Payne's film the kind of lift that feels perfectly fitting. Well, we don't know where this Barton school is located, but we suspect it's in the Northeast because of the weather and because of the close proximity to Boston, which figures into the plot line later. But I thought this was handled extremely well because you don't know what direction it's going to go in initially. We know in the holdovers that by a twist of fate, Paul Giamatti's character, Paul Hunnam, is forced to remain at the school with these five kids and a congenial janitor and the woman who's sort of the house mother cook figure. And we'll talk about each of those people in more detail later. So I thought this could go in the direction of the Breakfast Club uh, because, to me, it felt as though there was such an odd collection of holdover kids. And so that's what I fully expected to happen. But no, in short order, four of the kids are swept away to a Tony ski resort somewhere, leaving only one behind, as Dan has indicated. So there's the holdover of the holdovers. And... A lot of action happens in the halls of this school. We know that there's going to be some relationship formed among these various characters, but we're not exactly sure how that's going to play out. And indeed, this gives Paul Giamatti a showcase for all of his talents. And if you liked him in Sideways, I don't know what to think about this performance compared to that one, because I think in The Holdovers, 
you can't really like this guy because he seems to have some obliviousness about what's happening in the world. And at first we think that he's impervious to other people's criticism or commentary. But he knows well that the boys have always made fun of him. He knows well that he's the odd one out. And we do, over the course of the film, start to feel more for him. I would say that the real breakout performance here really is Dominic Sesa, who I'm not familiar with. I think he's a relative newbie. And I think he's a little older than the student group of 70s-era students would have been. But The Holdovers does manage to capture some of the vibe of that time period when I was actually in high school. And the performances are what ultimately saved this. I do want to give a super shout-out to... Divine Joy Randolph, because she was just superb. And, you know, she is working at the school. Her son was formerly a student at the school. He was the only black student in the class. And he has been killed in Vietnam. And that's sort of an aura that hangs over the entire course of events that takes place. Yeah, this is almost a Vietnam movie because all of these kids, these young men who are mostly from well-off families. They've kind of been sent here. At least the Dominic Sessa character has been sent here because he's been kicked out of a bunch of other schools, and he realizes that he only has one more strike until he's basically going to be sent off to potentially go to the war. And so that does hang over the whole movie. And you mentioned that The Holdovers captures the vibe of the time. I wasn't there, so I can't corroborate, but you can. And I can say, though, that it also captures the vibe of American films at that time. I mean, even the style of this movie, the way that it shot. The intentional style, yes. Absolutely. It's got sort of the warm film grain and the muted color palette. And there's even a couple of dramatic snap zooms that the camera does. The very beginning, the old style MPAA. Yes, uh, the ratings ratings. card comes up. And, you know, it looks and feels like a movie that 50 years ago, Paul Mazursky might have made or Hal Ashby might have made. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the soundtrack here, which is really good, has a, I think, deliberate call out to the Cat Stevens soundtrack from Harold and Maude. I think you're supposed to think about that. And I was also thinking about just as I watched this movie, because it is warm and human in all those ways that you described, I was thinking about the ways in which Alexander Payne has developed as a storyteller over the years, because you think back to his earliest films like Citizen Ruth or Election, Mm -hmm. and even parts of Sideways. I mean, his films were so caustic in a lot of ways. And I think that he almost had derision for his characters, especially in those first two movies. Citizen Ruth in particular. I mean, Citizen Ruth is pretty much, you know, everyone in it is, you know, up to no good. Um, And there are some notes of cynicism in The Holdovers, and I think that's just indicative of the time and place in which it's set. But for the most part, this is a really kind of welcoming film in so many ways that I don't think I would expect from Payne based on, you know, the first half of his filmography up to this point. I also have to agree with you, Dan, that I was a little bit disappointed that this did follow such a predictable arc because the characters aren't predictable in this movie, but the story is each of these three characters that we come to know, each of them has a specific trauma or hang up from their past that we know will be addressed in some way Mm -hmm. or they'll have to confront in some way. And it happens with an almost kind of metronomic 
pacing. And so I was a little bit disappointed that the script followed those conventions so closely. But everything around it is just really well done. And I do think that the performances go such a long way. This trio of performances goes such a long way towards making the these characters the seem movie. real. Right. Absolutely. And I'd like to give a, you know some kudos to Carrie Preston, um, yeah. who plays a administrative assistant at the school. And some of you oh, might yeah. recognize her from television mm-hmm. because she's been in like The Good Wife and The Good Fight. And she plays this very interesting lawyer character. And that also introduces some plot line that we don't know exactly where it's going to go. So she's also moonlights as a waitress at a local mm-hmm. uh, establishment where people People hang out. And so she has a Christmas party that sort of brings Mm -hmm. everybody together. Mm -hmm. um, And brings all of those dark things out of hiding for several of the characters. Correct. Correct. And and it leads to the one single moment in the film that is an emotionally wrenching film, particularly for Giamatti's character. Well, and for Divine Joy Randolph's character. I wanted to talk more about Giamatti simply because... You know, he's an actor who brings the same kind of energy to every single movie. I mean, he plays different characters over his 30-year career, and he's been in a lot of movies and <laughs> and commercials recently. So I, I am torn because sometimes I go a little bit too much Paul Giamatti, but I really did like him in this film. I thought he was perfectly cast, even with the walleye. You know, he's got oh, yeah, a, that's, he's got and that's a thing they keep talking about yeah, in exactly. the film. Well, and I think that this character, you mentioned, MP, that at the beginning you're not sure if you're going to like this person in The Holdovers, this professor character that he plays. Or he's not even a professor. He has aspirations to be a right. professor. But he carries himself as if he's yes, a tenured yep. professor, even though he's teaching these kids that – And he probably should have been. Maybe. uh, We do find out things about him, of course, that make us question, you know, where his Maybe his career path took a turn. Yes. But, you know, at the beginning of the movie, we're introduced to him handing out these essays where it's just all the grades are D minus, C minus, F, F plus, F minus. Except 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 for the 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 one kid. And, And so we're introduced to him in that way. And then we do kind of start, the layers start to come off and we do start to understand where he's coming from and that he is a really sad person. These are all sad characters, but they kind of find one of those found families in a way. The one thing I wanted to point out about the difference between the holdovers as it is now and the movies of 50 years ago Mm -hmm. is the Divine Joy Randolph character is an important part of this film. She would have been just a side feature. Probably, almost. It would have been about the two men. Exactly, exactly. But she is an honest character. And I I would bring up, and maybe this isn't an apt comparison, but this is where my mind goes. There were shades of the paper chase. I thought of the paper <laughs> in, chase, too. And, yeah. and love story, too. Not in terms of the story, obviously, the setting but the and, way that it's made. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm, Big paper mm-hmm. chase energy in this one. If that's a selling point for you, <laughs> you should was. see the holdovers. It was for right. one of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was our discussion of Alexander Payne's new film, The Holdovers, which is playing in theaters. This is Movies 101. It's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcast of Movies 101 by going online at SpokanePublicRadio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to look at David Fincher's Netflix streamer, The Killer. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio.
And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I discuss the Alexander Payne film, The Holdovers. Let's now turn to the work of another talented filmmaker, David Fincher, namely his Netflix streaming offering titled The Killer. Of all the characters that are popular in fiction, those involved in crime are among the most popular. And among criminals, those who kill, whether they're mob bosses or solo serial murderers, lead the list. The character that Michael Fassbender plays in David Fincher's Netflix feature, The Killer, is a lone player, the kind of expensive contract killer who works only for those who can afford his price. But though most of the film is Fassbender, known only as The Killer, narrating his life-slash-vocational rules, what we, and he, come to discover is that some rules are best ignored. This occurs when a murder-for-hire mission goes wrong, and suddenly our protagonist himself becomes a target. This sets in motion a series of events that, for reasons that seem to contradict the character's cold and personal view of life, cause him to pretty much contravene every rule in his personal codebook. Fincher is a first-class filmmaker, his resume including everything from an alien franchise effort to the Facebook study The Social Network, and to his crime studies from Seven to Zodiac rank among the best of the genre. The Killer, which is adapted from a French graphic novel, is second-rate Fincher, equating more to a Jim Thompson-like entertainment than anything of actual redeeming value. But his work is slick, as always, and Fassbender, especially when he's in his intense mood, is never less than interesting to watch. Well, I would not consider an evocation of the name Jim Thompson to be a bad thing. If anything, that would make me more interested in a crime movie. And this film, The Killer, does have sort of the lean simplicity of something like a Jim Thompson novel. Although the plot, as it were, does have some complications that I was not really able to follow because he's hopping all over the place. And I'm not totally sure how all of the people he encounters, because there are all these characters that kind of have one scene and then exit uh, stage left, usually because they, they die. The brute. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not totally sure how they all connect, but I don't know if it matters. And I was watching this thinking, you know, you see a movie like this and it makes you realize how indifferently so many contemporary films are made and shot, especially. There is an assuredness to the killer in the way that it flows, in the way that it moves, in the way it's put together. And you realize I'm in the hands of a master filmmaker here. Maybe not so much a master storyteller, because I don't think that the killer does quite go over the top into greatness. And you mentioned some of Fincher's legitimately great films. It's I agree it's not in that class. And I think that's just because of the nature of this material and the nature of the character, because both are at such a deliberate emotional remove that for long stretches of time, the killer does just feel like an exercise in style and not much else. But hey, what style? Yeah, I mean, right. th- there. I was also reminded of this axiom that I think was from Howard Hawks. I could be wrong, but he always said, you know, a good movie is three great scenes and no bad scenes. And I think the killer meets that requirement because you've got three great scenes here. You've got that opening uh-huh. where we're introduced to him as he's putting together this first kill that goes horribly wrong. You've got that prolonged fight scene in Whoa. the house in Florida One where of the, the killer and this scenes. other guy just demolish this house. <laughs> and it has this almost like slapstick kind of quality to it. 
And then the confrontation with the great Tilda Swinton near Mm -hmm. the end of the film in the restaurant where just the iciness of that scene is so – it's just such a great little kind of aperitif. Or what is it that you have at the end of the meal? A sorbet, I guess, Mm -hmm. Uh, after this kind of heavy material. So I had a good time with this. I think we can maybe talk a little bit more about – Fossbender, and maybe even about some of the dark humor that's uh, well, that and goes some throughout of the, dark the killer. But I had a good time. Did not work for me. Okay, I mean, well, I loved. At one point, he says WWJWBD, and I'm like, "What is that?" And he says, "What would John Wilkes Booth do?" And I was like, "Whoa!" That, now that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I thought was a little too cutesy is, you know, he has all of these different identities, right. and he takes them from like earlier sitcoms. Right. He's, like he's both Felix. Unger and Oscar Madison. Yes, he right, is. Yeah. Right, or he's Richie Cunningham or yeah. Howard Cunningham, yeah, yeah. et cetera. And I thought that was a little too cutesy. But I appreciated the rollout of the killer because he is this sort of enigma. Nameless. And, and to do that job, if it is a job, I guess so, yeah. you would have to have like a steeliness at your core mm-hmm. that most of us just don't have. But, you but know, we the- find out later that there is something that penetrates his stealing. And that's the great contradiction. That's the thing that I really appreciate probably most about the storytelling in The Killer is that the character is a study in contradictions. I mean, here is this guy who narrates the entire film. I think I pointed that out. talking to himself. Yeah, it's his thoughts. And basically they are, these are the rules of this job. Don't ever get involved. Don't ever make it personal. Don't ever show mercy, blah, blah, blah. And he breaks every single one of those rules. And as we come to find out, as Mary Pat was alluding to, the whole thing is set up for him to wreak revenge because these people have done something to him that made it very personal. And so I think one example is after that great fight scene, he could have made everything so much easier just by shooting a dog. But he refuses to. He will not shoot the dog. He makes the dog sleep and then runs from the dog at the end. You know, well, and, uh, so and there's a, there's the contradiction of his character. Well, and it's more than a contradiction. I think it's almost kind of a joke on Fincher's part. I think he is kind of having fun with these cliches because everything you just said is a total cliche. The idea that this supposedly steely hitman who never gets emotionally involved has somebody that basically is almost killed because of him. That's what sparks the revenge. We've seen that a million times. And I actually thought that character, because he does have a girlfriend in the movie, I thought that was a really unfortunate character because she's a plot device that is basically just in a hospital bed through the whole movie and never becomes anything else. But this movie also doesn't really have time for character development. I mean, nobody is developed, you know. And each of the scenes kind of feels like a set piece in a way. I also, I was reading online, I saw a lot of people talking about the killer, they were complaining about all the quote unquote product placement because we see him eating at McDonald's and he's ordering stuff on Amazon and picking them up at the Amazon lockers and he's even kind of hiding out in an abandoned WeWork uh, right. space. I, but I kind of liked I, that. I, I did too. And, and whether, I mean, if it is just shameless product placement, it actually kind of works here because yes. it grounds what could be a very ridiculous, almost fantastical story in our Everyday contemporary life. Yeah, real yeah, world. Yeah. And also, The thing I liked best about The Killer were the scenes about the minutiae 
of being this kind of person mm -hmm. because it's about, you know, this is what I eat. This is how I exercise. This is the music I listen to. And he's constantly listening to the Smiths. The Smiths <laughs> yeah. are, right. are another character for over sure. Right. This movie. <laughs> and that's kind of a funny contradiction in a way because the Smiths is, you know, like the saddest emo music you could listen to. <laughs> he's this steely contract killer. So it has some kind of like sly little details in there that make it a little bit different from your standard kind Correct. of Correct. I you know, agree. death wish kind of clone. So let's talk about Tilda. Let's. Of course. I mean, because at first when I saw that she was cast in this movie and she doesn't show up for a long, you're, long you're, time. You wait for a while. Right. Yeah. I was trying to figure out exactly how her character was going to play out. And so she does some of her usual Tilda type things. Yeah. But at the same time, I really thought that Fincher did a good job with sort of introducing us but not letting us get to know her right. completely. And so there's always this reserve that she puts up. And then there's one scene where the two of them come in contact with one another. And as you point out, if we're talking about three great scenes, that was certainly one of them. Yeah. And they have this conversation in this posh restaurant where she's just eating this incredible meal. But it's basically a monologue it's because exactly. he doesn't no, say anything. He's just she's staring at brick her. Wall and yeah. she's, you know, telling him these jokes and all of these, you know, And she aphorisms. decides to have a whiskey flight, which yes. is exactly the appropriate reaction. That's I what think. I would do if a killer was sitting across Knowing the table from me might as well right knowing <laughs> yeah, what her, happens her next. monologue is almost the same kind of thing that the killer does all the way through random thoughts i mean at one point she says you know sitting here and talking in the last moments of life it's an interesting thing it's yeah kind of like weird philosophical asides but yeah yeah i mean and i have to say that fincher i mean i think he is one of the great stylist working today and when you rattled off some of his earlier films you named some genuine masterpieces and I don't think The Killer is one and I no. I don't know if he has made a masterpiece in a while but again going back to just the craft of this movie the style of it imagine the, just the way it's put together is so effortless that I couldn't help but be pulled along by it even though I was like well there's nothing really new here no no but the movie I think is aware that there's nothing new right there. imagine what, what a second rate filmmaker would have done with we this. probably wouldn't be talking about it. No, I know? pretty much guarantee yeah. we wouldn't be talking about it. At any rate, that was our discussion of David Fincher's Netflix release, The Killer. This is Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster, and earlier on the show, Nathan Weinbin and Mary Pat Truthart and I discussed the Alexander Payne film, The Holdovers. Let's take this moment to thank Cassie Fox for both producing and engineering the show. And we thank you to our loyal listeners. We invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dial. And we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the late, great UCLA basketball coach John Wooden. Be more concerned with your character than your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.